So with that... Can you, can you mute him? What is it going to take, right? All right, good morning. How are you this morning? Oh my gosh, I should have been prayed for for wisdom before I hired him a year ago, I think. No. Revelation chapter 17. We are in the final four messages of the book of Revelation. And so if you've been around, um, I guess it started at the end of last year. And we worked through some of it. We took a break around Christmas uh, and then found out I needed surgery in the middle of that, all these little breaks in the middle. Then we got back on it and we're about to wrap it up. So chapter 17 this morning, uh, we have a big section to cover today. And so we're going to dive right in. If you've been working through this with us, I know like I see Chris in his journal, his notebook up front, we've covered so much of the images that come up in today's passage that we're not going back over all of them. So if there's something that you missed or if you're new to generations, you want to catch back up, please, by all means, let's talk after service. Um, but the imagery begins uh, from the beginning on forward and remains consistent. And so kind of having that backdrop as we work through it helps us understand the passage that we're in. So main idea for today, we'll put up on the screen. The church must remain distinct from the world. Jesus calls the church to be in the world, but not focused on the world. We live in such a way that others can see Christ through us and come to faith. Right? We live in such a way that others can see Christ in us and through us with the hopes that the way that we live advances the gospel and that people will come to know and trust and follow Jesus because of our lives. And so where we see the church now is we're in this book of Revelation, the church is in the world and suffering and hardship and things have been going on in the world. The church has even been persecuted. The call is to endure. That's where we pick up. Chapter 17, starting in verse 1. It says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. So we see this judgment of what John or the, what Revelation calls the great prostitute. Now, what he's talking about here is Rome. And we've seen this when we were in Revelation 13 with the first beast that comes out of the sea is Rome. And it's, it's Rome to the church that is reading it, that it's written to, right? That is the government or the empire that's over them and has been persecuting them. And we're going to see that the language will change in a little bit. And we'll talk about why that is and how it relates to us. The kings of the earth and the dwellers on earth or earth dwellers is a category of people in Revelation. Earth dwellers meaning those who are just earthly, right? They're not believers, they're not followers of Jesus. They live for this world. So kings of the earth become those who rule over the earth dwellers. And so this category, this subtle category has been developed throughout the book of Revelation. That those who dwell on the earth we see the saints, we see the martyrs, we see those who are in Christ, we see the church, we see those who persecute the church, we see false religion, we see totalitarian government, we saw all these things take place, but there's this repeated, subtle category of people who dwell on the earth, people that are just here and live for this world who are not connected to Christ. Now, this image that John uses 
that Jesus has revealed to him is a consistent image throughout Scripture. I chose a different translation uh, because we're a family service. I was trying to think like that, and um, I'm not a big fan of people who use different translations to kind of support their point. I was trying to clean up the language, and the ESV is much more literal. So if you have kids in here, you're welcome, just for the record. Hosea 1, verse 2 says this, maybe. There we go. When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, he said to him, go and marry a woman of promiscuity, much better than the ESV, just for the record, and have children of promiscuity, for the land is committing blatant acts of promiscuity by abandoning the Lord. I know now some kids just leaned over and said, what does that mean? Good luck with that. Anyhow, so the ESV is a much more literal translation, a good translation. I just thought we'd use this for this moment, all right? Here's what happens, and we're going to see this uh, when we finish the book of Revelation. We're going to spend the summer doing kind of one-day summaries of the 12 minor prophets. And we'll see this when we get to Hosea. God literally tells a prophet named Hosea, I want you to marry a woman. Her name is Gomer. Side note, never name your daughter Gomer. Just throwing that out there. It's a bad idea. She is going to, he says, you're going to marry this woman, and she's going to be unfaithful to you, and she's going to have kids from her unfaithfulness. And you're going to do so so that you can tell the people, God's people, this is what you do to me. You're unfaithful to me when you live in ways that are contrary to the gospel. Right? When you live and pursue idols and things of this world, when you live in ways that are not glorifying to God, he calls that immorality and ties it to that idea. So back in Revelation, verse 3, John says, And he carried me away in the spirit to a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes of the earth's abominations. So this woman that we see that has been identified and has been identified by her immorality, is referencing Rome and in general kind of the way the world lives apart from Christ. In this particular case, it is specific to Roman culture. Had it been written a few hundred years prior, it would have been Greek culture. It could have been Medo-Persian culture. It could have been Babylonian culture. It doesn't matter. It's the cultures that are not for God that end up persecuting the people of God that are living for this world. And so here are some things that it kind of notes. This woman looks beautiful, right? She looks pretty, and it describes her as a beautiful woman and how she is dressed. And, and the idea here is that sin always appears beautiful. Like, I think back to the garden. I think when the first sin enters into human history, God creates humanity, calls humanity to live, gives them everything they need, Equips them with all the food and, 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 a, and a partner to live with, a spouse to live with, and a commission, a garden to take care of, a world to fill with children, and, and a life to glorify God with. Gives them everything they need, and then there's this one thing they're, they're told not to do because that will kill them. And as Genesis chapter 3 plays out, it talks about right before sin that, that the fruit looked good, looked like it would taste good, and they desired the benefits from it. And we always say this, that sin always looks good, right? Or we would never do it. If it looked like junk, we would never do it, right? But instead, it looks appealing. And so we're drawn to it. It's misleading, 
but the image is there. And that's what this woman is. She looks beautiful. But then it says the marks on her forehead are abominations and blasphemies. And, and again, we remember the marks and the seals, the, the marks on those who are not in Christ and the seals on those who are in Christ. And it's not literal images, literal marks on the person's hand or head, but it defines their worship, right? That it, that it tells us if you are sealed by God, it is a definition of you worshiping Jesus. If they take the mark of the beast, it's not a physical mark, but rather it shows that they worship the beast, right? That they worship the world they live in and the things they can gain from it. And so it says that she is marked for what she worships, right? She is identified that way. And so she worships uh, evil and wickedness, and she rides this beast, right? She is evil to her core. She drinks in the power of this world and the pleasures of this world and the power of this world, and if you remember back to, Re to Revelation 13, we talked about those who worship the things of this world are actually worshiping, remember? Satan. Satan, right? There's only two categories. We'll talk about that in a minute. But there are those who are in Christ and worship Christ, and then those who are in the world and ultimately worship Satan, right? That there are those who pursue the things of this world. Verse 6, and I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. So we're now set in a setting about 1,900 years ago. And in this setting, these seven churches that are the recipients of this letter, most of them are being persecuted, many of them by Roman emperor worship. And so what we see is that this woman, who in this moment represents Rome, is drunk with the blood of saints, the blood of the martyrs. That the opposition to the church is to the point of death. And we keep reminding ourselves this, that the church is in the world, under tribulation, in the suffering, and they're there for a purpose, that we remain in the world so that others might see Christ through us. Right? That we have a purpose here. If all your salvation was about was getting you to heaven, then the moment you came to faith, you could just be scooted on over to heaven, right? But we remain here with a purpose that we are those who are to shine the light of Christ into a dark world. And then we're reminded time and time again in Revelation that the suffering or enduring that we need to do in this world, that it is worth the cost because to make others aware, to lead others to Jesus is of great value. And so we're reminded of our purpose. So verse 7, but the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth, notice the earth dwellers again, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. We talk about the seven heads and the ten crowns or the horns and the heads and the crowns and these different passages from Revelation 13 on forward. And we've noted that it's a parody of Christ, that the, the beast is a parody, right? That it is mocking Jesus. The horns have to do with authority, the crowns with royalty, the heads with leadership. And so as we see these different things identified, we're reminded of what it's speaking to. It speaks of how things 
how powers on earth seemingly come and go. It, it was, and it is, and it's gone, and then it returns. And we think of how kind of nations and kings come and go. Powers rise up and then are defeated. Now, we don't live in a world here in America that is constantly undergoing change. Uh, just imagine living in a place like in the Ukraine right now. They're going through things, and they've been under different governments during my lifetime, for sure. Afghanistan's had just a series of things. Uh, just There are nations that have undergone leader, massive leadership changes just in the last few decades. Here, we've been kind of holding the fort down for almost 250 years, right? We've been going kind of the same direction. And here, we don't really endure all that much, all that much hardship for our faith. Maybe you make a stand in an area and people will push back, but it's not like we're giving our lives because we're openly pursuing Jesus. And so because of those things, because we don't really identify with some of those things, we often miss the point, right? That nations and kings come and go, that persecution exists, that there are places right now in the world where it is deadly serious that if you are a Christian, you can lose your life. And that there are places where the church is pushed underground. The underground church in China comes to mind. That to be found out is to be imprisoned or killed. And so we have to understand Revelation as being not only written 1,900 years ago to the churches 1,900 years ago that are reading this in their day, dealing with Rome, who is persecuting and killing them, especially under Caesar Nero and Caesar Domitian. That they have been impaled and, and lit on fire to light gardens just for sport for the emperors. That their world was a world filled with struggle. And those things exist in the world today. And so when we see it true here, and then we understand that it's true in other places, we understand this to be a book that is not about what is going to happen or what has happened, but a, a book about what always happens. And so we're reminded that nations rise and fall, and that could be us too. I'm kind of think of the only relative thing here that we see all the time is we're starting to hear politics ramp back up again as we near a general election, a presidential election. And I think of every time you get a president in, it seems like two years later in the midterm, it seems like kind of the other side has some successes, right? That there's this push and pull in our political system. And it's like that in the world, sometimes too big extremes, sometimes actually where people are removed and people are killed, these big shifts. But here we can even see that back and forth of power in smaller ways. Verse 9, it says, this, is my, this calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not come yet. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. Now, we made a decision in the beginning to treat Revelation, to treat Revelation according to its genre, that it's an apocalyptic writing, meaning it is meant to reveal a message to us, and it uses, oftentimes, even mythological language like the beast, right? That it uses these images, not trying to identify a literal beast, but that the beast literally means something, right? And that it's consistent throughout. 
And so we've taken that approach. We've said, okay, when we see this description of Jesus with a sword coming out of his mouth, we don't think it's a literal sword, that it teaches us a literal meaning about his words. Or that he's the lamb looking as if it had been slain, but standing very much alive. We don't really think that Jesus looks like a little sheep, right? That it teaches us that he was the Passover lamb, the sacrifice on the cross who died and resurrected. So we treat Revelation literally, but not the images. We read it in its context. And so we don't have to take the numbers to be literal. Sometimes maybe they are. I believe there were truly seven churches receiving this that John was writing to, that he cared for from the island of Patmos. But we haven't treated many of the numbers as literal numbers. And so staying consistent with that, we find meaning in them rather than try and point out who were these five kings, the sixth king, the seventh, and then the eighth. And I read through some explanations of who those are. Everything from trying to identify different Caesars in Rome some would start with Augustus, and you have to ask the question, what about Julius Caesar? Why not include him? Or some go here, and they exclude three in the middle, and none of it really makes sense. They back up and look at the, the parallel passages in Daniel, where you see Babylon, and then the Syrian Empire, and the Middle Persian Empire, the Greeks, and the Romans, and we know that part of that relates because the, the beast that we have here that is Rome was mentioned by Daniel in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. But again, the whole five plus another one, another one, another one, nothing lines up. So as I looked at everybody's different answers, no one has a good answer. That it doesn't identify particular kings. That it doesn't even identify particular empires. But rather, if we zoom out, we see a limited amount of authority and power. And we see kingdoms come and go. We see nations rise against nations. Some are there for a minute and then recede and return. Some take over, some conquer, some are birthed out of other things. And so when we look at this, that's what we see. It is best to stay image-driven and meaning-driven rather than try and identify, does this horn mean this person or this empire? You see, and the point is here, it's not about Rome only, but it's about all empires and governments that persecute or live in opposition to Christ. Any empire that stands against God and his people fit into this category. Verse 13. They're of one mind and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. That's important. These empires that persecute, these empires that dominate, these empires that, that take over for power's sake, they do so and they give their power and authority over to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, verse 14, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those who are with him are called and chosen and faithful. We're reminded of like the, the stories in Daniel, when Daniel has those visions, and there's this statue of these different kingdoms, and it starts with a golden head, which is Babylon, and it works its way down, and kind of works its way down to the Roman Empire, and then Daniel's vision says, and then there was a, a, a giant rock thrown from heaven that was carved out by no human hand, and it came and it crushed all these kingdoms. And we're just reminded that Jesus is king over all kings. He is Lord over all empires and lords. That Jesus reigns above all. We don't need to worry about who is the who specifically. Or even figure out, okay, is that something to come or is it now? But rather that Jesus reigns over all. I'd give us a caution too. 
And there are, uh, surely in this group, there are, there are people that are more prone to this and others that are less prone to this. But in America, we tend to think of ourselves as the good guys always in the story. And I think, I think much of that is true. I think that we don't have a perfect justice system, but I like ours over pretty much everything else, right? Does that make sense? Not perfect, it's human. And I think we try and do good things in the world. I don't think that's always true. I think we also do some very selfish things in the world. I think we've been in conflicts and wars that we had no business in being in. But we need to remind ourselves that America fits in this too. Right? That, that our nation, the nation we're li we live in, though it may give us many advantages, and though it does give us freedoms that many don't have, the freedom to speak, the freedom to vote, the rights to be here with a sign outside that says we're a church, still... This nation, its government, its leadership exists for power, right? Politics exists to get power. And right now, politicians will do anything. And I, say, and I say this equally of all sides, both sides. They will say anything, do anything to get your vote and manipulate the people to stay in power. And when you get to that place, you have to admit that's a lot like worshiping the beast, Right? So we can be in a good place to live and still recognize we don't have godly leaders. I don't think any of us are making the case that we have godly leaders. And so just remember, there's nothing neutral about this world. There's these two giant categories. We'll put this on the screen. There's no neutral people. Only two biblical categories exist. Either we live for Jesus or for Satan. There are no neutral bystanders. Unfortunately, we are found to be in Christ. Ultimately, we are found to be either in Christ or against him. And so that means us, right? It can't just mean the people on the other side or the people 2,000 years ago or the people in the future. That means us. We are either in Christ and we live for Jesus or we are in the world, of the world, and live for the world. Like the earth dwellers that John keeps telling us about. Revelation, back in 15, says this, back in verse 15. The angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated and the peoples and multitudes and nations and languages... And the ten horns that you saw on the beast that will hate the prostitute, they will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh. Listen to this. The king's turn, right? The powerful turn. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. See, sin ultimately turns and destroys itself, right? The powerful turn on one another. And for a season, this leadership, this government, this empire, this whatever, this business, this family, this whatever identification, it, it profits us so we stay involved in it. And when, when it stops, then all of a sudden we're over here. As we're talking about American politics and we're running up to a presidential election, we see this in the, in the primaries. We see this as... Republican versus Republican and Democrat versus Democrat, and they'll say whatever they can against the other person, even in their own team, to try and get their, them to be promoted, right? And then, when it becomes them against the other guy, then all of a sudden, they're cool again. A little disingenuous at best, right? But when we think through the lens of politics, I always tell my wife, just think through the lens of politics. Think power, think control, think money. Right? That will almost answer everything. Like, why would they do that? Power oh, yep, totally got it, right? Like, now it makes sense because of their goal.
And we see that sin turns on itself here and devours itself. But I love this line because God put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose. God sovereignly oversees even the chaos of this world and coordinates it for his purposes. Revelation 18, starting in verse 1. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Why not Rome? I thought we were talking about Rome. Well, see, Babylon is this biblical image of earthly sinful governments. And so, yes, we're talking about Rome. Rome is the empire that is over the church, as John writes to the seven churches in Asia Minor that he is caring for. And they are, it is Rome that is persecuting the Christian churches. It is also some other groups, but Roman worship is one of the leading things that, that you would worship an emperor, that you would call the current emperor a divine god. And Christians say, we can't do that. We believe there's only one god. See, if you were a Roman worshiper or a Greek worshiper, you worked a, a pantheon of gods, you worshiped all kinds of gods, then adding Caesar in is not a big deal. But when you're a monotheistic Christian, meaning you believe there's only one God, in that case, you can only worship one God. And so the Christian church would resist the Roman cult worship. And because of that, they were persecuted by Rome. And so Rome is the real threat to the church that John is writing to, that, that Jesus is speaking to. But then we zoom out and it's called Babylon for a purpose because Babylon has been this consistent image that reminds us of governments that persecute, of leadership, of empires, of people that are purely here for what they can take out of the world and that they will hurt others, including the church, to get there. And so, yes, it's about Rome, but we zoom out and call it Babylon because it's not just about Rome. See, if it were just about Rome, then it would have been true 1,900 years ago, and it wouldn't be true today. See, if it were just about historic Babylon, what is that, 2,800 years ago, then it would have been gone and wouldn't apply to us today. And if it was about something in the future, some mystery thing that's going to happen, well, then it wouldn't be relevant to us either. But rather, it's about what always happens. It's about people and nations and powers that come against us as the church. No, we're not giving our lives, but for sure, biblical values and views are being eroded in our, in our, in our culture daily. An understanding of who we are as created by God, who we are made to be, gender, sexuality, marriage, family, all these things, justice, all these things are being redefined for us that, that go against a sense of biblical truth, what God has made. And so Babylon fits here, as well as on the other side of the world, as well as 1900 years ago, and it will fit for as long as humanity remains before Jesus returns. So fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. It is coming to an end. The sinful powers of the world are going to cease. Verse 4, then I heard another voice from heaven saying, 
Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven. And God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. A mixed, mix a double portion for her cup, for her in the cup she mixed. Come out of her, my people. It's separate yourselves from the world you live in that you don't end up being polluted by the world you live in. That's what he's saying. We're here, and again, like we said, we're, we're in the world, but not of the world. We live in the world as believers in the world that we might shine light to the world, that we might show others Christ in us. And so he says, be separate, be distinct, be different. To see the gospel, as we began to say earlier, God created us and loves us, designed us, made us, gave us the way we are called and created to live, and sin entered that and broke all of it. It broke us internally, it broke us spiritually, it broke the world we live in, it broke us relationally. And you fast forward to our day thousands of years later, and, and, and what we find is that we've just added sin upon sin, and we live in a very broken world. So when we read about these things, we see them in the world we live in. And if we understand the gospel correctly, we understand ourselves to be partly to blame. That's what we always say, if you're new here, if you're our guest here today, we don't think we have it all together. In fact, we know that we're broken, sinful, and in need of a Savior. That we need salvation. That we are not innocent. That we fall short daily. And so just as sin came into the world through one man, through Adam, and it brought death to all of us, so also salvation comes through Christ. So Jesus enters into human history. He lives the life that you and I are called to live, commanded to live, but that we choose not to and fall short of. And Jesus does that perfectly, always bringing glory to God. And then he gives his life on a cross, suffering, enduring the wrath of God on our behalf. We talked a lot about that last week. That he drank the cup of wrath, as it uses that language again today, that we deserve what he took in our place. And as Jesus was buried, his, his death covers our sin. As he was resurrected, he gives us new life, and he calls us to join him in mission. For those of us that have been through Discipleship Essentials, you know you begin what we call the Great Commission, that you are, you are to be, you're to make disciples and teach people, baptize them, teach them what Jesus taught us, to be obedient. And Jesus says, I'm with you always, to the end of the earth. Right? I remain with the church in the struggle, in the turmoil, in the tribulation. While you endure, I remain with you, Jesus says, till the end of the earth. And he sets us on this mission to live uniquely and distinctly from the world we're in so that we show a different way, so that we show Christ to the world in which we live in, that we should be distinct from the world we're in so that when people struggle or have questions, they can look to us and go, okay, you're different. What's different? Why are you different? How can we find Jesus through you? We should be that distinction in this world. So he says, come out of the world. My people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. 1 Corinthians 5 or 6 says it like this. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? I hear this used for a lot of other things. Here's what it says. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, but you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. I hear this in relationship to all kinds of things that people do, whether it be smoking or something different. Well, here's what Paul is saying. Listen, you house the Holy Spirit like you are Christ 
in the world for the world. That you are empowered by the Spirit to live in such a way that the Spirit remains in the world with you. That you represent Christ to culture. That you should be distinct and different because you are Jesus to the world around you. We get to be that empowered by the Spirit. We get to be light in a very dark and broken and painful world. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So live for God. Jesus paid your price, our price, so live that way. So live in such a way that others can see Jesus. Verse 7, <clears throat> excuse me, as she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. This is probably one of the most important phrases in this section. I'm a queen, not a widow. Mourning I will never see, like suffering, mourning, hurt, I will never see. See, we believe that we live for gain in this life. She says, I'm a queen, not a widow. Right, I've got what I want. Mourning I'll never see, I control my destiny. As she is about to be judged and defeated. But see, again, I'm a queen, not a widow. She sees herself, the, the world sees itself as doing well. Well, I have money, I have power, I have influence. I have a nice house, I drive a better car than my neighbor, or whatever. I'm a queen, not a widow, and he's saying, no, you're dead inside. No, you have nothing, because you're separate from Christ, you're dead inside. Mourning, I will never see, I will never suffer. I control my destiny. God says, that is not true. We all know those stories are just things changing overnight. You guys know my story with Lisa. We were great, we're doing well. One night, went to sleep in the middle of the night. Lisa woke up and has been chronically ill for almost 21 years. Bedridden for most of it. We've been married three years at the time. Tomorrow's our anniversary. 21 years that she's been sick. It changes overnight. She was the smart one. She was the one who never been in trouble. She did good in school, not me but it changes overnight. We all know the athlete that takes an injury and can no longer play the sport that they desire. It happens overnight, it happens in an instant. She says, morning, I will never see. You can't control your destiny. Well, let's look at some ways that we can apply this to ourselves today. Verse eight, for this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, alas, alas, you great city and you might city Babylon. For in a single hour, your judgment has come. The kings of the earth now are weeping when they lose power. Weeping when they lose their authority. They lose what they had for gain. So let me ask you this, and we'll put this on the screen. Where are you focused? Do you place your hope and security in earthly things? Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus in order to remain pure from idolatry and be a faithful witness for him. Where are you focused? Where do you spend your time and your money and your energy? That will tell you what you worship. It will show you what you give your life to. Is it work? Is it education? Is it sports? Is it a way to pay for college? What is it? 
Is it even family? See, even good things given wrong emphasis in life become idols. It's where we put our time, our money, and our energy. That will show us what we're devoted to. They used to say, look at your checkbook, but I know most of you don't have checkbooks. So look at your calendar. Look at where you devote your time, your energy, your money. It will show you what you're focused on. Verse 11 says, and the, the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her. So now we go from the actual authority who is Babylon, the, the woman, the government, the power, the oppression, to the kings of the earth, those who gain power because of it. Now we go to the merchants. So the merchants of the earth, verse 11, weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple, cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood and all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses, and chariots, and slaves. That is human souls. I love that pause to remind us. The fruit for which your soul has long, verse 14, has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of torment, weeping and mourning aloud. He says, the fruit for which your soul longed for has gone from you. So again, as we look at how to apply this, we'll put this up on the screen. Money and possessions. Our longing for money and possessions causes us to overwork, take on debt, undermines our commitment to church and ministry, and influences our kids to do the same. Revelation says this ends in torment and mourning. What you do with your life says more than what you say with your words. Parents, how you live influences your kids far more than what you tell them. That how you live, if you live consistent with your faith, you prioritize your faith, your kids will prioritize their faith. They will see a consistency in how you live and how you speak, and they will replicate that. But if you say one thing on Sundays when it's convenient, and then do everything else, they will follow that. You can't say Jesus is most important and then miss four months out of the year because of the sports cycle that you're in. You can't do that. You have to be consistent. You can't belong to something and profess that Jesus is most important, but that other thing constantly takes you away. That other thing is your worship. That other thing is your idol. Verse 16, alas, alas for the great city that was called, was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. It all ends suddenly. Your health could change tomorrow. Your life could end tomorrow. It likely won't. Your health could go. Your, your dreams could go. Again, it takes that one injury to remove you from the sport you thought you'd give your life to. You could lose the job that you thought was forever. You could lose the ministry that you thought was your calling. You could lose the spouse that you thought that was the love of your life. You could lose the child that you value most dear. It all goes away in an instant. So when anything other than Jesus is the priority in your life, understand you could lose it all. So you devote yourself to these things and then they get stripped away. And where is your joy and your purpose now? 
Verse 17, the second half of it goes on and says, And all shipmasters and seafaring men, the people that work in these places, sailors and all those whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and they cried, cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads and they wept and mourned, crying aloud, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships and sea grew rich by their wealth. Notice their focus, what they got out of it. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. See, what is the call to follow Jesus? Is it this? Is it pursue everything you can milk out of this life, you know, physically and, and tangibly that you can take and try and get everything out of this? Or is there something else? And Jesus says it like this in Luke, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, right? Whoever will lose his life or whoever save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. You can pursue everything here and lose it all. Or you can focus on the one eternal true thing, Jesus, the true person of God, Jesus, and you can live forever. But again, there's just two options. There's being in Christ and living for Jesus, or there's being in the world and living for the world. Verse 20, rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her, meaning the sinful world. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. Just like the stone in Daniel crushes nation after nation, pointing forward to the kingdom of Jesus. We see that Babylon, once again, is destroyed. We see that all human authority, power, anything that stands opposed to God is destroyed. Verse 22, And the sound of the harpists and musicians or flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft we found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were not the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery, and in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. As Babylon, the world is judged, as the sinful world is judged, the church is pulled out. There's no more worship in the world. There's no more light and justice in the world. There are no more hope of Christ in the world as God begins to bring it all to an end as we've seen in Revelation, is this cyclical teaching showing from different places how evil and wickedness is judged. Revelation 19, we'll just do a few verses here. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. We remember back all the way to Revelation 5, 6, 7, right? Crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Remember last week the emphasis that God's judgment is righteous and true and good. Verse 3, once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her grows up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. Again, we defined all that earlier passages. Verse 5, and from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants who fear him, small and great. And we see the consummation of eternity begin to take shape. As Babylon, the wicked world, the authorities of the world are judged, we also see the kingdom begin. 
Verse 6, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord God our Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Throughout the Bible, we're given a story. There's, there's a few narratives that are from front to back in Scripture. One is this comparison of the city of God to the city of humanity. Babylon fits that comparison. The kingdom versus Babylon. But there's another one. There's, there's the, there is this woman here that we've been reading about. The great harlot riding on a beast. And then there's the bride of Christ. And as they are defined, one looks very beautiful and is very tempting and is very alluring. And then we find out is just utter blasphemy and pain and ruin and will be destroyed. But now we're introduced to this other woman, the bride of Christ. And we're to compare these two. We're to ask ourselves, where are we, are we focused? Are we focused on what we can gain out of this world at all costs? Or are we focused on being the bride of Christ? Listen to this last verse. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. That's you, that's me. The righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. So this large section, 17, 18, the beginning of 19 in Revelation, they're meant to give us a comparison or a contrasting. We see the woman that represents all that is broken in the world and all the wrong ways to live in this world. And then at the end, we start to see the next view a woman who is called the bride of Christ, who is us, the church, who is clothed white in righteousness, who lives faithfully for the bridegroom, Jesus himself. And we're called to put ourselves into the story and ask, where do we fit? Are we over here in the great harlot, on the beast? Are we seeking this world and pursuing the things we can get, the money, the power, the fame, the fun, the joy? the distraction of this world, the immorality of this world. Are we here or are we over here as the bride of Christ living distinctly, living uniquely, living other than? And we ask ourselves, where do we fit? And so I'm going to put the verse that we put up just earlier and I'm going to ask you a question. We'll read it again. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. These are the words of Jesus. When people ask, what does it mean to follow you? Well, then you're to deny yourself and take up your cross, die to yourself every day, and follow me, Jesus said. He says, if anyone will lose his life, or will save his life, he will lose it. Anybody who wants to live over here and pursue this world, you're going to lose everything. He says, but whoever will lose his life for my sake will never lose it. You'll enter into the kingdom forever. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So I'm going to ask you today, what is it in this world that so distracts you from living as the bride of Christ? What is it that draws you off track? We all have this. What is it that pulls you away, that, that pulls you outside of or off track from being the bride of Christ, being the church living uniquely in a sinful world? on mission for the sake of the gospel, where others can see our lives and say, I can find Christ in them and through them. Not perfectly, but I can see Jesus. 
How do we find ourselves as the little temples of God walking around empowered by the Spirit so that others can find their way to their Savior? What are the things that interrupt that? What are the things that pull you away? Today is the day to lay those things down. Today is the day to say those can be taken in an instant. They have no value. They have no worth. They end in pain and misery, and they end in judgment. But over here, blessed is the one who is invited to the marriage supper of Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. You came and gave everything for us. Jesus, you sacrificed everything in heaven to come to earth and lowered yourself to be human. To be tired, to be lonely, to be hungry, to be sad, to be happy, to, to endure all that it means to be human. You laid down the glory of the throne of heaven and, and you became like us. God, you gave us Jesus. You sacrificed for us. Jesus, you sacrificed everything to be like us so that we could live like you in this world temporarily. So that for this fleeting moment of life that feels like it's everything to us, but it is such a short moment on a timeline that we could just live faithfully to you so that we would glorify and honor and draw people to you. Identify in our hearts, Lord, please, today. What is it that draws us off track? What are the things that we give ourselves to that we should not? What are the things that cause us to sin or cause us to pull away or distract us? We live in a world filled with distraction that pulls us off mission. What are even the good things that we have just put in wrong places where only you should be? Would you reveal that to us today? Just as you have said, we are temples of God by the Holy Spirit, that your spirit in us, may your spirit speak. And may we know what we need to repent of or turn to, walk away from or turn towards. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.